Hi, I'm Rich Wynn. And I'm Rebecca Nixon. And this is the, the PropTech, PropTech Growth, Growth Podcast. Podcast. Every episode, we interview an expert in the PropTech startup space, gathering their advice and expertise to help you run a successful PropTech business. I'm the Portable PropTech CMO, and I help PropTech startups build and scale their commercial growth strategy. I'm Rich from Richwind Consultancy. I specialize in operations, sales, and process, helping fintechs and prop tech companies to grow. Great to welcome Gary Barker to the podcast, potentially best known as the ex-CEO of Repit. We're going to get into some really interesting conversations around growth with Gary. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure talking about prop tech and growth. It's part of my DNA, but... I was talking to somebody today and they said, what is your background? And I said, oh, property. And they said, how long have you been in property for then? And I had to depress myself and said, it's been 25 years. I spent 10 years with the Countrywide Group and I had fantastic experiences there working my way across finance roles and IT roles. I was there at such an exciting time when they were valued at like a billion pound and we created right move and that was just getting off the ground i think one of my biggest career decisions is i worked on the deployment of right move and they said to me do you want to come and work with right move or are you happy being the it director for countrywide and i was like who wants to work for a portal i spent 10 years with countrywide and then i came across the repeat guys because we implemented it as our crm solution and i met the guys there and they were like, at the time, I think there was like four or five people at Repit. And they just literally acquired a business called Matchmaker, which was run by Simon Whale. And for those of you who haven't met Simon, you meet Simon once and you want to work with him. So I met Simon and I then spent 15 years at Repit, employee number five or six. And we had just phenomenal growth over you know, the first 10 years. And it must be pretty much just over five years ago, we did a management buyout backed by AKKR. And I think we grew the business just over three times the size in less than three years. Post that, I left after three years. And then for the last 18 months, I've just been doing non-exec roles. Looking at businesses, you look at a management report and a board pack and you go, is this right? I was talking to Rebecca earlier about addressable markets. So you start looking at the addressable market. Where are you targeting? What the strategies are? But people who know me know I get frustrated being a non-exec because I like the detail and the execution. And so after 18 months of doing that, I happened to meet a guy called Rudy Botha, who's the CEO of Better Home in South Africa. And they'd just acquired the fine and country brand over here. I met up with him for the worst lunch we'll ever have in our life. It was throwing it down with rain. We ended up going to Initsu. He was like, what's this place? And I go, don't worry, I've got this covered. I'll take you here. And then I think we had a three hour lunch. He invited me over to South Africa to have a look at the business. My wife on the way back was like, we need to come and live here. And I was like, oh, okay. And then fast forward a few months and yeah, it's been unreal. But just don't ask me to do anything other than property because that's all I can do. And you're also part of the Nurture Accelerator, is that right? Yeah. Uh, and this is something that a lot of people look at is that they do a lot of partnerships. Maybe I'll ask Rebecca about this as well in a minute because I know she's seen a lot of this. You create these partnerships with lots of different businesses. And the problem is, is the partnership always has more value on one side. And getting that right is a little bit of a seesaw. So we looked at that and nurture and said, Jesus, we've got 4,000 odd offices using one of our software platforms. You know, Yes, we can do these partnerships and we can plug this and we can plug that in. But sometimes we want it more, sometimes they want it more. And we was like, right, what can we do that actually means that we're together and we're unified. 
So as a board, we looked at it and said, look, we've got a lot of experience growing businesses. We've got a lot of experience integrating businesses. You know what, let's help them. So we launched the accelerator on the basis that we'll invest in early stage businesses that had a really good growth objective, but we would treat it as a proper kind of VC. And then what we would do is we would push that through our networks and we would offer more and more, but at least that way it was no longer a partnership. So we used to kind of call it build by partner. And now it's build, buy or invest. And I think that's worked really well. I don't know, Rebecca, how you've seen that because you must have seen a lot of partnerships and had to work with them. Yeah, I think the partnerships channel is often overestimated in terms of ease of implementation. I think people get excited about partnerships because they're like, oh, we don't have to spend money on whatever marketing channels that they may have quite often attempted to use unsuccessfully. And so they... They go, oh, well, partnerships, it always gets held up as like this silver bullet. Partnerships are challenging for a number of different reasons. In fact, the primary reason I've found is that when you partner with another business to share a client base, which is usually the way it works, the salespeople in that business are primarily motivated to sell their own product. That's their job. That's where their bread is buttered. And even if you offer incentives to them, those are going to be limited and they're certainly not going to be any better than the ones you offer your own team. So already you're on the back foot. You may get slice of the conversation with people that the other company already have a really good relationship with, but they are working really, really hard to build a great relationship with that client on their own merit. They don't want to dilute that message by adding in other businesses. They don't want to detract or distract from their own sales process. They don't want to lose their focus, which is closing, winning, and retaining that customer as their own. So you get a couple of CEOs who get along well and are non-competing. They go, well, why wouldn't this work? And actually, because all the right reasons, your salespeople are motivated for your business and your products and they're sold into your vision. So attempting to get them to work on somebody else's pipeline is never going to be anywhere near as effective as you might imagine. And the other reason I find it difficult to work with partnerships is in terms of scaling, it just slows you down and it dilutes your marketing channels. And I don't see this to be negative about partnerships. If you have a good relationship with another business and you've tried a partnership and it's working, then go for it. Don't let me put you off it. But if you are really trying to carve out a niche in a market, you need to be building that relationship directly with your TAM, your total addressable market. You need to know who they are, where they are, what they're interested in, how you can add value to their business and their lives. And that needs to be your full focus. If you can do that, the leads will come in, the relationships will build. And if there are other businesses providing value to them that they find out about through you, they're going to be interested. So that kind of organic partnership growth, I think is good, that cross-pollination. But in terms of an actual primary marketing channel, I've never seen it produce anywhere near as much revenue as people like to think it might. I think you're spot on with an awful lot of what you say there. And I think you have to have a platform that supports that, don't you? I remember 
five years ago when we did the vision of Repit and the foundations platform, when we built that platform as a service, the whole idea of it was to do partnerships, but in a really valuable way. It had to be valuable to both sides of the equation. It was valuable to Repit because we wanted our customer base to get a much better experience, whether it was know your customer or it was e-signatures or it was SMS or it was mail marketing solutions. We wanted them in our ecosystem. And because we couldn't integrate with everybody at the time, we really wanted to give our customers a platform where they could do that. And I think that was the only way the partnerships was going to work, where it was properly mutually beneficial. Even to this day, I look at what Foundations is delivering and I sit there proud looking at it going, that was my baby. And we came up with that strategy years ago. And I don't know how many partners there are out there, but it's growing daily. But at least that way, it does help tangibly provide some benefits. So you touched on the nurture around the VC side of things. Do you have a particular view on should you bootstrap, should you VC? I think there's a few aspects to that. Is it down to the individual? Because... There are certain individuals, if I look back at the repeat days, they were very happy to go, do you know what? We'll go slow and steady. We'll continue to bootstrap it and we'll focus on winning one customer and then next one and the next one and the next one. And we also went, you know what? We can't win every deal. So we've got to give ourselves the best chance of winning a deal. So what we did is we, um, you know, Rebecca picked it up when she said about the addressable market. We looked at the whole of the market and we said, right, there's like 15 to 20 CRM providers. We then listed them out in size. And we had the whole industry kind of mapped out. What we then did is saw all of these CRM providers. We looked at all of their functionality. We looked at anywhere where we had gaps. We looked at how we could do data conversions and how we could do migrations and how we could do templates and how easy it was. And it sounds awful. I probably shouldn't name it because it wouldn't be very fair, but we, we literally would pick a product. And I remember picking one product in particular. It doesn't exist anymore, so it doesn't matter. It was called Solex HomeView, and it was a great CRM system years ago. But we knew we could convert it really easily. We would literally run the conversion for HomeView before we would do a demo. So we'd sit there and do a demonstration with the agents with their own data. And we'd be like, oh, did you realize you had 2,000 customers you haven't spoken to in the last three months? And they're like, no. That was us. We chose that way to say, do you know what, we're bootstrapping. And we're literally just going to go target that specific part of the business that we knew we were going to be good at. And we picked that product. And then we picked another product. And then we picked another product. And then we had a reasonable market share. And then we said, okay, now let's look at the whole industry holistically. What do we do well? What don't we do well? Where does the platform come into play? The UK market, the top 500 agencies account for about 50% of all listings. So we've got that bit of the market. Now, if we want to get the SMB bit of the market, what do we need to do differently? So that was all done off the back of successfully bootstrapping and targeting the business. And then when we did take the investment on from AKKR and we took on that real investment push, we grew 3x in three years or so. So if you do take that VC money on, the first question they'll ask you is, what are you going to do with the money? And that sounds really bizarre, but often CEOs of these kind of startups early stage businesses they go we need money and you go okay and i say okay what do you need the money for what is it going to do for you well i want to scale that's brilliant how are you going to scale are you going to scale because you've got a really good product and it's going to be just SaaS and you're going to go do direct marketing are you scaling because you want to hire a sales board are you going to scale because you want a marketing person you're going to scale because you're going to go through a reseller route it really does come down to the individual I've worked with some unbelievable entrepreneurs. You ask that question to them and you know what? They literally go, aha. 
and they go down to the very nearest penny. They know exactly how they're going to do it because they know, right, I'm going to target this part of the market and I'm going to do this. This is going to achieve that little stepping stone. And then once I've hit that stepping stone, I'm going to get to this stage. Once I hit that stage, right, that's when I'm going to do a Series B, Series A funding and I'm going to be happy days. And I've seen serial entrepreneurs do that, but there is no one size fits all. It does depend on how much revenue you can get from each customer. So how sustainable is it and how much can you bootstrap for a period of time? And you know, if you want that cash injection, when you take that money on, it's diluting your business as well. If you've got a really good business and you don't need the money, you know, you don't need to go down that route. There are other ways. Equally though, VCs add huge value. I work with a few of them. We obviously say nurture adds its value, but I've worked with traditional VCs and they can add so much value. They will help you accelerate. The VCs will go, look, we've done SaaS before. We can tell you that what you've got to do is you've got to look at this model for your revenue. You've got to look at this in terms of how your technology works and you've got to do this for your marketing. You know, you haven't got a product owner, you haven't got product marketing, you haven't got your fit, you haven't got your messaging. And then all of a sudden you're going, oh my God, these VC guys have added huge amounts of value. It just depends on where you are as an individual and what you're used to. So that's me sitting on the fence firmly. This is just out of interest more than anything. Would you always have a co-founder or would you try and do it yourself, depending on what your skill set is? It's really funny, actually, because, I don't know, 72 hours ago, I had the same conversation with a founding CEO and he said to me, I'm looking for a CTO. I said, are you looking for a CTO? Are you looking for a co-founder? And he goes, what's the difference? And we had this very conversation about it. And I said, well, are you looking for somebody who's going to tap the keys and be a CTO who's going to code up products and everything else? Or are you looking at somebody to help with the whole technology strategy? And he sat there and he goes, I think I need a co-founder. I don't think you necessarily need it. Does it give confidence to investors? especially if you've got a good balance across co-founders. If I look at some of the best businesses in prop tech, invariably you've got somebody who's got a vision, who's got an idea, who's entrepreneurial. And then you've probably got the dull person like me that is operational and looks at the detail. Or, you know, Richard, look at yourself. Look at what you do with businesses. It's all about the operational execution. And you need that balance. Some of the most talented founders are really good at getting a business to a certain stage. And then they just have to step out because they can't have a huge team around them. When I look, if I put an investor hat on, I'm looking for co-founders to work together and coexist. If I look at the best entrepreneurial ones in that early stage, often working on their own is actually good for them. We know the volatility in all sorts of verticals um, with everything that's going on in the world. Obviously, this is something that's not good, but there's so much opportunity when something like this happens. Are there going to be winners and losers in the prop tech space? What do you see coming out of this that's going to help move the industry forward? In a tough market is when the best solutions come forward. And when I say the best solutions, they're the best, they're the ones that add the biggest value to customers. It becomes a customer value proposition. It doesn't become a, I can spend more on marketing and everything else. That's gone. If you look back two years ago, when we had just come out of that horrible COVID crisis and the housing market was booming, you know, rentals has been going like that for the last few years as well. And so if you had money to market and you could get in front of those people, you stood a decent chance of actually selling to them because they were making enough money that the decisions weren't so scary. But, oh, man, now that's gone. I've been working in prop tech long enough in 2008 when it absolutely kiboshed. That was one of our best ever years at Repit because 
we focused on actually solving a problem. Right now, how can I build your market share? We've got to be value propositioned. You know, are we going to save you money? If you're going to save you money, how are you going to save you money? I always talk to salespeople about this. They go, oh, it makes you really efficient. You're going to save a head. No, you're not. How many heads have you got? I've got one at the moment. Well, I can't save one head. So that argument is potentially flawed. You've got to get that right. It may well be if you've got 10 people doing that job and you can then bring it down by one or two. I've seen that absolutely demonstrable. But how's this software solution going to generate more revenue, more market share? How am I going to reach more people? Well, it helps me reach more people because we use retargeting or we use AI to actually focus or we take all your leads and we requalify them for you and we make sure that you're only talking to people that can do it. All of those kinds of solutions make a big difference. I mean, Richard, if you went into a business tomorrow and you go, right, show me your P&L. And then you're going to look at the cost base in a tough market. Cost is one thing. And then the revenue, you can only grow it by a certain amount. So if you're going to grow it by a certain amount, what are you going to do? I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, now's the time to advertise and market and everything else. If you're doing brand marketing, you're wasting your time. We've now got to be product focused. Rebecca, what do you, what do you think? I mean, you must see this day in, day out. I do. And it amazes me. This is so many people I speak to. They're like, we're spending five ten grand a month on things like pr and apologies to all the pr agencies out there who work in our space but in every single startup i've ever worked at the first thing i've done is fire the pr company i have yet to meet one that provides measurable roi for what they do and they talk about brand recognition but brand recognition is only worthwhile in the context of lead generation and relationship building and value proposition. Brand recognition in and of itself is, is just nothing. It's just fluff. Everyone knows who McDonald's is. You're not McDonald's. You're not Apple. You're not Nike. You are a product and you are selling to businesses who have tight margins and they have investors who are expecting to see a return on that investment. So the first thing I do whenever I go into any business, before I start working with them, I sort of interview a business before I pitch to them. And I am asking them questions that they're sometimes quite taken aback by. I ask them, what's your runway? How many customers do you currently have? What's your ARR? what's your TAM, what's your total addressable market, what's your value proposition to that market, your existing customers, why do they love your product? That is a really, really key one for me because so often the messaging that a business is putting out into the world isn't actually in line with why their customers are with them. And People will come to you as a marketing person and they sort of look at you like you're a poetic guru, like you're going to write some amazing tagline that's going to get them loads of customers. And actually, the first thing I do is I go, what are your customers saying about you? Why do they love you? And I take those words and from that, I craft the messaging. I don't make it up. I go to the customer because the customer knows what value they're getting and why it's worth spending money on this product. And from there, that's where you get the real gold. That's where you get the really amazing messaging that resonates with your market. And you put that out and it becomes this amazing feedback loop of growth. In these situations or where we are at the moment, are we almost back to the people by people? 
and it's because you know you've had a good relationship is that where the value is now or is it the value of the I'm product not, i think it's gone the other way the relationships open the doors but its solution has to stand up on its own two feet. In a very buoyant, active market, there is a concept of, I'll try it. You've only got to do one sale to pay for it, whatever that is. All of those arguments right now, that's gone. I suspect I could pick up the phone to a lot of my friends and go, look, I've got this new great solution. You know, have a look at it. And they'll have a look at it, but they'll go, you know what, Gary, the margins are tight in agency, both on the sales and the letting side for different reasons. If you look at where their biggest spend comes from outside of people, it's invariably the portals. That's not going to shift or change anytime soon. We won't have that debate. Definitely not right now. Outside of that, they're going to tread very carefully. But what I can tell you, in the UK, five years ago, we surveyed agents and I thought, well, let me have a look at how many pieces of software they actually use. So we did that analysis. And on average, it's between 12 and 15 pieces of software an agent will use. Can I ask a quick question about that? Because that's a really, really interesting statistic mm. that I think our listeners will want to know a bit more about. 12 to 15 pieces of software. Are you are you talking about specialized industry software or software in general? I'm assuming no, no. the industry form. software. Yeah, yeah, industry software. So they were using between 12 and 15 pieces of broadly prop tech type solutions. It was mind blowing. And the guys at Betime kind of said to me, um, nah, no, nah, no, nah. in South Africa, it's five or six. And I was like, Okay. And I do what I like doing. I researched it. Better Home have about 17, 18% market share across South Africa. So I sent a survey out to all of their brands. I didn't ask them how many pieces of software they use because invariably you don't get the right answer. We drilled it down into how do you find using this piece of software? What about, what do you do for this kind of thing? How do you manage this kind of process? It was a horrible survey. One of the worst ones I've ever done because it took an average 25 minutes to complete. It was far too long. And the level of return we got was way higher than expected but what it does is it emphasized that they have between 10 and 13 pieces of software so it's nearly the same as the uk guarantee in australia it's exactly the same america it's actually slightly more we're talking about an industry here that is still very very unconnected with how it operates so that value proposition is even tighter now because of the fact that people will look at that and go, do I really need 15 pieces of software? Actually, can I consolidate this across one, two, three, four providers? Relationships open door, solution actually sells. I have to agree. And I think 15 years ago, it was different. You could be like, hey, is this really cool new thing? And I'm always saying this to people who have AI or machine learning. They want to slap that everywhere and be like, it's so cool. And they always talk about their technology. And and really, it has to absolutely come down to what value are you offering the client? What is the customer getting out of this? What's in it for them? Because something that's really cool and interesting is no longer a value proposition it really has to improve their bottom line as a business that's definitely the angle that i'm pushing so we're very much on the same page in that regard i would really love to know from you what changes you've seen over the time that you've spent in this niche yeah i'll answer that in just a second i was going to add as well one of the things that right now is really important from a growth strategy as well is not losing customers 
People forget about their existing customer base and they forget that their customers were paying for a solution. Yeah? How many prop techs and technology businesses globally analyze what customers are using in their software? I had a great team. We analyzed every single piece. So we knew how many agents were using our software and which parts of the software they were actually using. And we would go in there every single month and Gary Hardy used to present these reports to the biggest customers. He would go into the biggest customers and go, look, do you realize you're not contacting your past buyers and past sellers? Do you know that only 50% of your lead inquiries have actually been dealt with? Do you know you've got 25% of your stock that's going to withdraw because you've had no offers for it? I'm super, super, super proud that for, I don't know, first 10 years or so of being at Repit, we didn't lose one customer. Our net retention when we did the management buyout was 105%. We didn't lose customers. We actually gained users. You know, our customers were, were growing and we were growing with their customers. That's so important. So, so important. But going back to your question, Rebecca, what have I seen changed? And so for a start, I've seen way more adoption of technology with agents. They want to embrace it. Do they know how to embrace it? No. And that's not their fault. They don't know what good looks like. I just mystery shocked all of our agents across a whole spectrum. And on average, only 52% of them responded to the queries. And I said to the CEOs of those businesses, it's not your fault. And they said, well, it is. We're not training our guys out. I said, yeah, but what technology have they got to help them? For every rental property that comes on the market, there's 14 applicants that apply for it. 14. So how does an agent choose which of those 14 people that they should actually take around the property? Well, invariably they take as many as they get around until it's actually rented out. But how do they know they've got the best tenant for that property? Now there's technology. I mean, Rightmove are doing it, Lettings Hub are doing it, a few others are doing it. This concept of property passport, which is where the inquiry comes in, you get a response back saying, thank you. Can you just tell us a bit more about you? Have you got pets? Have you got this? Have you got that? When are you looking to move? We get all that qualification and then we can score them and we can also pre-approve them if you want to as well. And those 14 people, if four of them actually qualify the pre-approval, that's only four people I've got to take around compared to 14 people. And so that's solving a problem that really helps the industry. And I'm like, this is the kind of thing we need to be doing. So agents want to use a technology. They want to solve a problem. They just don't know how to get there. That's our job. Those technologists, we've got to help them get there. There's an appetite for collaboration. People want visibility of what the chain's doing. They want visibility of what the market's actually doing across the board. The one bit that I am blown away with that I haven't seen improvements on is the bloody process. I sit on the board of View My Chain and they're trying to solve that little bit of it, which is at least demonstrate where the chain is. But where's the process? Where's the, where's the government initiative? We all know what we want to do, but how the hell can you get an oil tanker like the property industry to kind of just shift and change a little bit. I'm such good friends with Peter Ambrose from the partnership. Love him to bits, superstar. So I'll name check him here. He's got great ideas. He's just built an inquiry management tool. So we can automate a lot of the inquiry management pieces. I tried to buy a house probably 12 months ago, 15 months ago. And I went through this whole process of buying the house right at the last minute. The search happens and I find out that they're building HS2 through my back garden. Well, not being funny, why didn't I know about that up front? Can one person solve the problem? No. But as an industry, we need to do something differently. And we, we can't accept that a third of properties fall through or of those which they do come back onto the market and sell. But predominantly, we still lose 15 to 20% of properties that come on the market. It's just not right. And I look at the consumer journey and go, oh my God. No wonder people buy and sell houses every seven years. Yeah. And then I look at South Africa, 90 days. 
And they're upset with the fact that from offer accepted to completion is 90 days. I mean, Rebecca, let's not talk about Australia. I mean, with PEXA now, you can do an auction to settlement in what, seven days or something ridiculous? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's no more complicated than say buying a car. There's oh, yeah. some process and some checks. I've just gone through this myself about the same time frame as you, Gary. So I speak as a consumer as well. The process is an absolute nightmare. When you think about the way things work now, you do all of your research upfront and get all the information you need to make a purchase decision. And then you have the process afterwards, even on the most basic level, Amazon, Google platform you're using to make a purchase decision. It's all there. You read, you compare, you read reviews, all of my mental search parameters are there at the top and I go through a process and make a purchase decision. The housing market has not got to that point at all. The information you get from a building survey is upfront purchase information. How safe is this building? How much work does it need done on it? The survey should be happening before it even gets listed because that information is relevant to the purchase decision. There's so much information. And I found when viewing properties, there was this mm. idea that sellers and agents had, which again, not their fault, but if you just come and see it, <laughs> I can convince you that it's worth all of that stress and all of that drama. You'll just love it and, and then you'll buy it. And I'm afraid that people won't do that anymore. And sales fall through every single day because search has come back in a certain way or the survey comes back with certain results. And sellers and agents would all save themselves a lot of loss and a lot of hassle if they fixed the process and gave buyers that information up front. And actually, you might even open up your market to a whole lot of new buyers who wouldn't have considered the property in the first place. But because they've got this information up front, they're more motivated to buy. That's my view on it. 100%. I'm, I'm massively on the page. I built the HIPS technology for Countrywide. I work with Steve Richmond, who's now the COO of LSL. And I remember picking up the phone to him and he goes, got some horrible news for you. We've just been told it's being canned. And I was like, oh. and, and I remember at the time, everybody was like, oh, yes, it's great. It's been canned. And now you look back on it and you think, okay, look, it wasn't perfect, but Man, if we were to get that upfront information, it's a starting point. It's an entry into it. There's so many different ways of pulling this together. And I just believe that as an industry, we need to kind of step up and do more of this. That for me was the next step of where I would have been taking Repit is how the hell do you solve the process? We've got a technology platform that was designed to handle every part of this. I can actually solve that problem. And I know a number of ways in which I would do it, um, but it's, we've got to go there without that we're not going to see any changes uh, i'm afraid that's where i see it going at the moment i think more of the solutions that connect that industry up together and make it easier to buy and sell on the new build side obviously zoopla your move have almost got that wrapped up they have all the information up front because they've built the property so it is easier in that respect but there has to be something within that that you can do for existing properties what I would like to see, which is never going to happen, but I think would be really interesting, would be a groundbreaking move. If right move, step forward and said, we are going to change, we are going to do this. We are going to get everything in one place because 
it needs someone brave enough to step forward and do that because all the little companies can try as hard as they want but we need somebody out of the top five biggest companies yeah, yeah. otherwise it's just not going to happen it's a strategy that i would have to completely change this industry but if you think about the property industry as a marketplace if you talk about amazon and a marketplace if you wanted to get something now you go to that marketplace Property does not have a marketplace. And I spelled out probably a year ago, 18 months ago, what was needed to do it. Um, and you need one or two of the bigger players because it does take a massive consumer education piece as well as an industry engagement piece to make it happen. And therefore, to your point, Repit was never going to be able to solve it because we never had the consumer eyeballs. But by partnering with a right move or a Zoopla, you get that. But there is so much that can be done there. And I would love to solve that problem. I've got probably seven or eight ideas over how we would do it and how it would be executed with different providers. Now, if I look at the likes of CoreLogic in the US, if I look at what MRI are doing, if I look at what Zoopla have done and what their ethos was around their platforming, there's so much that can be done there and the vision can be so much wider than what it currently is at the moment. Our house is our biggest asset, but we don't have anything that captures that asset. Where's the consumer? Where's the consumer technology? How often do we sit at home with pieces of paper and stuff like this? Shouldn't have that anymore. We should know exactly what's going on digitally. There's some cool stuff I think that's coming along that if you can get the consumer eyeballs to buy into it and you can get the understanding of what it needs, there's massive, massive opportunity there. Yeah, definitely. And what a great point to finish. What I've taken from this is absolutely huge and will help us speaking to other people as well. I know you're a busy man. Thank you for your time. There's some really great stuff there. So thank you very much for that, Gary. It's been great to talk to you guys and I know how much value you add to businesses and it's good to talk about just technology in general and how we all try and do the right thing in PropTech. You know, we love this industry. It's why we've been doing it for so long. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gary. Amazing. No problem. Right. See you guys later. Take it easy. Thanks for joining us on the PropTech Growth Podcast. To learn more, you can find us on LinkedIn or email proptechpodcast at icloud.com. See you next time.